Good evening. The GOP launches a street fight in Georgia over the right to vote. A Trump official says the virus was accidentally released by China to receiving pushback from the White House. The threat from avocados to an in- iconic insect and a secret New York City police union deal to pay for the defense of the indefensible. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI Evening News for Friday, March 26th, 2021. A maritime traffic jam grew to more than 200 vessels today outside the Suez Canal. Some vessels began changing course as dredgers and tugboats worked to free a giant container ship that is stuck sideways in the waterway and disrupting global shipping. An expert said freeing the car, the cargo ship, the Ever Given, could take up to a week in the best case scenario. Owned by a Japanese firm, the ship got wedged Tuesday in a single lane stretch of the canal, about four miles north of the southern entrance of the canal. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki had this to say earlier today. We are tracking the situation very closely. We understand that Egyptian officials are working to remove the tanker as soon as possible and continue traffic. As part of our active, I should say, diplomatic dialogue with Egypt, we've offered U.S. assistance to Egyptian authorities to help reopen the canal. We're consulting with our Egyptian partners about how we can best support their efforts. Uh, So those conversations are ongoing, and hopefully we'll have more to say about that soon. About 10% of world trade flows through the canal, which is particularly crucial for transporting oil. The ship is also structurally damaged, and the race is on to remove the ship before any more damage occurs. And President Joe Biden on Friday called a sweeping Republican-sponsored overhaul of Georgia's elections laws outrageous and an atrocity and urged Congress to move quickly to bolster voting rights across the nation in response. He added to comments he made about the Georgia law at a news conference yesterday. What I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick. It's sick. Deciding in some states that you cannot bring water to people standing in line waiting to vote. Deciding that you're going to end voting at 5 o'clock when working people are just getting off work. Deciding that there will be no absentee ballots under the most rigid circumstances. The Republican voters I know find this despicable. Biden commented after Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed into law new restrictions on voting by mail and greater legislative control over how elections are run. Kemp lashed back, accusing Biden of attempting to destroy the sanctity and security of the ballot box. The press secretary had this to say about Biden's potential use of his presidential power. The administration has taken executive actions on voting rights, and of course we will continue to review options in that regard. I will say we expect to have a statement from the president on this voting law that passed in Georgia. He's worried about preventing states to bring water to people standing in line, waiting to vote, deciding to end voting at 5 o'clock when working people are just getting off of work, making it more challenging, not easier to vote, deciding that there will be no absentee ballots under the most rigid circumstances. Like the late Congressman John Lewis said, there's nothing more precious than the right to vote and speak up. The president certainly believes that. There are pieces of legislation that he 
he is watching closely, that he will be engaging with members of Congress on, including the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, to make it easier for all eligible Americans uh, to have to vote, to have access to the ballot box, and to prevent attacks on the sacred right to vote. I'll also note that when he was in Georgia just two weeks ago, he met with Stacey Abrams while he was there, and he will also continue to encourage and engage with outside leaders and activists on steps they can take. Uh, obviously, there's a range of groups and organizations that may take legal action that will be leading in activism. Some of that is going to be more appropriate from outside of the White House. In Georgia, lawsuits are being filed by Democrats, including from a group called Fair Vote, headed by Stacey Abrams, who was narrowly defeated for governor by Kemp two years ago. In January runoff elections, Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff were elected, delivering control of the United States Senate to the Democrats. But Warnock, who headed up the same church once led by Dr. Martin Luther King, faces a new challenge in two years. A journalist based in Georgia is Zach Roberts. He says among the most outrageous laws is banning food and water from voting lines. Making it a felony, (laughs) making it a felony to provide Food and water at pizza and different pleasantries for people who are waiting in three, four, five hour longer lines. Even in the runoff election, we saw five hour long lines like in Cobb County. The Republican election board there consolidated the number of polling locations for early voting. They ended up consolidating the polling locations and getting rid of basically almost all of the polling locations that were in heavily black areas, heavily black and Hispanic areas in the county, which is almost as filled with people of color as Fulton and DeKalb. It was the last kind of FU of uh, Cobb County election people to basically try to screw with the election. We saw four or five hour long lines at these early voting places, not even on election day, which on election day, I barely saw any, everyone in the state was worried that some shenanigans was going to go on on election day. So basically everyone voted early. The four or five hour long lines, if you're having that problem, you're talking about a failure in the system on the governmental end, not in the number of people voting. That's a that should be seen as a positive thing. But the Republicans in Georgia, for some reason, don't see that when it comes to our elections, when it comes to our voting, what people say is our most important power. If we do nothing else as a citizen, we should be voting. And this is Georgia's response is to make it more difficult to add voter ID provisions to absentee ballots. A bunch of states that do this already, we see huge disenfranchisement of people who can't get to the polls. Ridiculousness of like providing a photocopy of your your ID. It's another step that they get to on Election Day when they're counting the absentee ballot. They go, oh, well, I can't really read what his ID says. Throw it out. This law has just passed. What's the first step? There'll be some challenge. Stacey Abrams Group, Fair Fight, and uh, and Legal Women Voters, there's a whole bunch of lawsuits going on that are going to probably hit it. One of the big problems is is that you're going to have these things already start to kind of go into process. What you have is with all of these laws, you have the disinformation network starts. This is kind of a nod to the far right people who don't basically don't want black and Hispanic and Asian people to vote in the state. You start having the fear, which is this is what they do, is they want to make sure that it's a felony to hand people a bottle of water in the line. So that means that people won't volunteer to work with groups. People will be more scared and potentially take those little couple. All they have to do is knock off a couple votes in every polling location across the state and they keep the state red. We have to remember that in two years, we have another Senate election in Georgia. Senator Warnock is up again. And they want him gone like you wouldn't believe, because not only is Georgia once again in in, in 2022 
going to be the state that potentially means that Democrats lose the little control of the Senate that they have. It means so much to make sure that a black reverend from Martin Luther King's church doesn't stay in there because we know that Warnock, if he has one thing, it's going to be he's going to be making sure that voting rights on a national level are going to be protected. And that is Zach Roberts speaking to WBAI earlier today from Georgia. He works with journalist Greg Pallast. And in COVID news, the former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Robert Redfield, believes the virus that causes COVID-19 escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China. He said that during an interview with CNN Today. I still think the most likely uh, etiology of this pathogen in Wuhan was from a laboratory Um, you know, escaped. Uh, Other people don't believe that. That's fine. Science will eventually figure it out. He was a Trump appointee and prompted a White House response. The WHO is examining this and we'll be releasing a report soon. We'll review that report once it's available. We continue to learn more about the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, including its origins, so we can better prepare for future crises. I know Dr. Walensky addressed this, and I think Dr. Fauci did as well uh, this morning. And we'll look closely at that information when it's available. Researchers believe the deadly and highly transmissible strain of coronavirus behind the global pandemic mutated from a virus that infects animals, namely bats, to one that sickens humans. WHO and most scientists studying the outbreak have been saying it's unlikely a lab error released the virus. And the online magazine Indian Country Today, that's been a source of news for indigenous communities for 40 years, was saved from extinction today. Evolving from the weekly The Lakota Times, founded by Tim Giago, a Lakota native in 1981, changing its name in 1989. Then it went to a magazine format and now an online daily digital news publication and daily national news broadcast. The National Congress of American Indians transferred ownership to Indige Public Media on Friday, a new nonprofit being formed in Arizona. The online magazine's headquarters had already moved to Arizona State University's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communications in July 2019 after being several years in Washington, D.C. Unable to pay its debts, the Indian Country Today magazine had gone offline. Now it's back and WBAI wishes them good luck in their endeavors. And in Mexico, caught between organized crime, avocado cultivation, and international conservation, indigenous towns are organizing autonomously to defend themselves from gangsters known as malosos, or bad people, who locals say are trying to steal reserved lands for avocado plantations, serving the market for the delectable fruit in the United States. Columba Gonzalez Duarte is co-author of the article, Indigenous Communities in Mexico Take Up Arms to Protect the Monarch Forests in NACLA, North American Congress on Latin America's online publication. Her co-author is Manuel Erste. This insect migrates across North America from the east coast of all what we call today Canada and United States and over winters in Mexico, the east coast migration. We have another migration on the west coast, but this is the east coast migration, which is trinational. Um, these waterflies arrive to the forests of Michoacan and Estado de Mexico only to that forest, though they only like and, and are able to overwinter in that forest. They stay there for three months and they, they return. The same insect, they don't reproduce, the same insect returns to the open landscapes and prairies of what we call today the United States in Texas and they breed there and they repopulate the North American landscape again. So it's quite a magical migratory phenomenon. 
the same insect, the same butterfly, travels back and forth thousands and thousands of miles every year. Yes, and to it a lives, specific spe yeah. place. To this specific place in Mexico, they, yes, and it's a place that they don't know. This is the first generation that is born in United States and Canada that has this drive to migrate. They don't know the route, but they do arrive to the same forest every year. They overwinter there and they return and they live up to nine months um, to be able to perform such migration. So it's quite spectacular. Yes. And so what is the threat to the forest where they come to in Mexico is a is a national forest. It looks like on the map. Is that what it is? Yes, and first let me add that this is not the only threat for monarchs. Monarchs have are in danger all the way in the corridor, so it would be wrong to assume that the only problems of monarchs are the monarchs, uh, the overwinter breeds. Uh, it's actually a larger problem across North America. In Mexico, however, they do also need a healthy habitat, and that occurs in these forests. If they don't have a healthy habitat with the right conditions, they well, we are not available to survive the winter and lower numbers in Mexico means lower numbers in the north and the same happens if we have lower numbers here in the north we will have less monarchs in Mexico so it's all connected so in this community what happened in December there was people that they call malosos who arrived to the forest and they coerced some of the community members to give them food and water for um, some weeks while they were trying to institute their own governing in the community. So the community responded and said, we don't want you to govern through these violent means. Our communities, they reply back. Um, they are now fighting to gain an autonomous government because these communities are indigenous. They can fight to gain autonomy and regulate themselves in self-governing themselves or and they also want to develop their own indigenous police. Has this brought them in conflict with these bad people? There was an urgency at the moment, December and January. So far, we know that at least things calmed down because they were able to congregate community members. They are united. They are doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Are there any deaths, injuries or deaths attributed? They were, to yes. In December and January, they were. The numbers are not clear, but yes. And how is the government responding? Is the uh, the AMLO's government and the state government been supportive or not so? I don't think we have a federal level response yet. We also have to consider that it's a reserve which is governed by the UNESCO model, which is also an international reserve. Uh, so the kind of powers involved are local, national and international. What happens next? We hope that they do the right thing, that they gain their autonomy in the, according to the process. If they gain that autonomy, it's possible that they will be able to manage the forest and protect monarchs in a better way of what's going on today. Should I stop eating avocados? I was just getting used to them and liked them, but now everything I like turns out to be bad for the environment. Is I that know. true? It turns to be hard. Yeah, I. you have to watch where are they coming from. It's a delicacy. It's a luxury. It shouldn't be a product that we buy easily at the market. Um, the implications of buying a product which is not local are important. And in this case, that demand is taking up the forest that monarchs need. They're chopping down the forest in order to plant avocado trees. That's the reality. And it's this is a protected area, so that's illegal, and there's a fight against it, of course, but it is nonetheless happening. Is it a significant loss? Well, the significant loss has been there for the last century. It's not new, but it is increasing for All sure. Right. 
And Columba Gonzalez Duarte is co-author of the article, Indigenous Communities in Mexico Take Up Arms to Protect the Monarch Forests, in, available in the uh, publication, online publication of NACLA, the North American Congress on Latin America. Her co-author is Manuel Erste. The majestic monarch butterfly makes a 9,000-mile round trip covering all of North America every year, crossing the borders of three nations, the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And in more border news, Journalist Tom Miller just wrote the piece, The Greater the Disaster, the Greater the Profits, the Border Industrial Complex in the Post-Trump Era for TomDispatch.com. He says the so-called crisis at the southern border is an ongoing crisis that fluctuates, but that many more than usual are coming to know coming now to face the dangers of deserts and mountains. He spoke from Tucson, Arizona with WBAI earlier today. There are people crossing through those areas or Geronimo, the eastern border of Arizona. I'm, I've been hearing that lots of people are crossing in those areas. And that's it's designed to be that way. The border strategy really since 1994, and believe it or not, the Bill Clinton administration implemented a strategy called prevention through deterrence. And the whole idea was that traditional crossing places, easier crossing places, less dangerous ones like cities – uh, would be would, a lot of enforcement would be placed in those areas, and then people would be then if they want to cross and they they can't get in, you know, with without authorization, then they would. Which since getting a visa is very difficult, m many people are in that category. Getting into the United States, you have to go around, and the the de the deterrence part of it is exactly what you just mentioned that you know. Who's gonna? Who can walk through the canyons or the mountain ranges and the deserts, especially when it gets hotter? Um, when you can't carry enough water, you can't carry enough food. That you can't really get out of this thing healthy. It's it's to the point where people call it a humanit a persistent humanitarian crisis. And um, that but that's exactly what's happening right now. And so it's 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 a situation that you can't that's happening, but a lot of it you can't even see. Right. You could go like down Highway 286, which is a highway right near where I live that you you take to the border and you'd see all the Border Patrol. You'd see tons of Border Patrol agents. You'd see surveillance uh, technologies along the side of the road. You go through a Border Patrol checkpoint. You, you see like um, a number of different things, but you wouldn't see the people the people crossing because they're, cro they're avoiding those whole areas. And that's the whole point of the strategy. So you're saying it is a crisis. The border itself manufactures a crisis and there's different degrees of it. When there's more people coming, then you see it more, but it's constantly a crisis. It's a perpetual crisis. That's how I would frame it. And how is this, do you think it's going to play out from what you've seen? Of course, there's some big changes from Trump to Biden. In the Biden administration, there's a number of things that they're doing, taking in unaccompanied minors, for example, as one thing. But at the same time, the whole border apparatus, as it has been for 25 years, as, as it has grown, has not changed. And the certain reasons why people are coming in the first place, also the push factors, as they call it, they haven't changed either. What we're having is maybe it will ebb and flow, but until some fundamental things are changed, we can just anticipate the sort of perpetual crisis. 
whether it be a lot of people coming or in other times there might be less people coming. But you can guarantee as long as conditions remain the same in all these spheres, this will keep happening. Carrison said there are people from Central America themselves. Uh, the problems of corruption and militarism and poverty in those countries are solved. That's where the action has to happen, not on the border. Yeah, that's exactly the, the the root causes and climate change too. When you when you think of Central America, the the droughts, the the hurricanes that hit the last at the end of last year, along with the marginalization of people, the the stratification. I often too look at U.S. policy and how it's manifested in Central America through the militarism or how the economic situation is structural adjustment programs that have gone into these countries that leave huge swaths of the population really poor. And along with the corruption and now the climate change, you have a lot of root causes to really look at. And there's a a number of different factors that play into that. The border and the militarization of the border and the more walls and more fences and armed agents seems absurd. It's not any sort of solution. And that's journalist Tom Miller. He's the author of a new book called Build Bridges, Not Walls. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The New York City Council has passed a package of bills aimed at reforming the New York City Police Department. One of the measures clears the way for people to sue the department over allegations of unreasonable search and seizure or excessive force. Another calls on the state legislature to remove final disciplinary action from police commissioners, including whether or not an officer should be fired. The final authority will be given to to the Civilian Complaint Review Board. Police would also be required to keep track of the race and ethnicity of drivers who are stopped for traffic interactions. And another measure calls on Albany to require new officers to live within the five boroughs. Mayor de Blasio is expected to sign the bills when they reach his desk. But today in ProPublica, reporter Jake Pearson has a story about a little-known provision in the contract between the Fraternal Order of Police and the NYPD. He says the fund that has been set up quietly in that contract may Make sure that taxpayers are stuck with the bill for the defense of cops who do the indefensible. The city almost always represents officers who have been sued for their on-the-job conduct. Defendants will say violated their civil rights. In the rare cases when they don't, we track down what happens for their defense. And it turns out that per an agreement that was struck in 1985 between the police union and the city during the course of contract negotiations, a separate fund was established, directly subsidized and paid for by the taxpayers to pay lawyers for those officers in those circumstances. It is a taxpayer-funded, union-controlled defense fund for when the city, in the rare instances that it doesn't want to defend officers, walks away from them. What's wrong with that? The issue is public policy. Unions advocate for their members, which is their prerogative and what they're supposed to do. The city makes deals that are supposed to be both economically just and also have a public interest value. The question now in the wake of George Floyd and this continuing conversation about police accountability and what can and can't be tolerated among our police force is the extent to which these contracts have special privileges and protections that officers are afforded that no other workers are afforded. So in this conversation, union contracts and these privileges, we quote a expert professor from the University of Omaha on this, who just says essentially that this is the type of clause and provision that is unique to officers that no other employees, public sector or otherwise, are entitled to. The conversation now is, is that in the public interest 
or is that a special interest that is protecting behavior that harms the public? It seems to be the type of setup you would have if you wanted police to be a little rough sometimes. In 2019, there were 562 cases naming police officers as defendants in which citizens, residents of New York, claimed their rights were violated. There were either false arrests, brutality, what have you. Of those hundreds of cases, the law department almost always represented them. It was only in 48 cases, only 48 of the 562, that the law department made a determination based on a 1979 law that the officers were likely acting outside the scope of their duties or had violated an internal disciplinary rule and were therefore not entitled to a defense. It is the policy of New York to almost always represent cops because there's a recognition that the job is tough, that they put their hands on people, what have you. What this contract and what the story focuses on is the tiny sliver of cases when even the law department, which is very tolerant of cop behavior, says, nope, we're not gonna represent here. And in those two cases, even though the city walks away, the taxpayer is on the hook to pay for their defense. 48 cases, anything linked them together? Did you look at those cases? We looked at a lot of them. There are common themes. There are a lot of cases frankly, where they are caught on video. In other words, there are allegations of brutality or false arrests. One of the common denominators is that there is undisputable videographic or video evidence of what occurred. There is no room to wiggle, essentially. It is not a he said, she said. It is demonstrably provable what did happen by a video. And in those cases, it's not all of them, but in many of those cases, it would be hard for the city to make a defense. What's the reform that you think would fit this? The PBA is operating on an expired union contract. They've opted for arbitration. That process takes a long time. Whatever deal is struck will be two years. And the new administration, whoever is elected mayor next, there's a primary in June, will inevitably get to negotiate a labor contract with the police. So the question becomes, for the new administration, is this an issue? Is this the type of special privilege the mayor wants to fight the union. Is there a willingness and a desire to take on a very politically tough issue like extracting this type of provision, which has been around for 35 years? ProPublica reporter Jake Pearson. And finally, beloved children's author Beverly Cleary has died. She was 104 years old. Cleary was the writer behind the popular characters Ramona Quimby and Henry Huggins. Cleary's publisher, HarperCollins, announced that the author died Thursday in Northern California, where she had lived since the 1960s. No cause of death was given. Trained as a librarian, Cleary penned more than 30 books, which sold millions of copies, saying she began writing because children told her there were no stories about kids like them. Her first novel was 1950s Henry Huggins, based on the children she grew up with in Portland, Oregon. She received the National Medal of Arts in 2003. One of America's most successful authors, 91 million copies of her books have been sold worldwide since her book, first book was published in 1950. And that's some of the news for Friday, March 26, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>